Welcome to the podcast Benzo Tired. I'm your host, Naftal Benesti, and I'm Dutch. Join me on my journey into the world of benzodiazepines, withdrawal, bind, and more. Disclaimer, always consult your physician for medical advice. This is episode 31, a conversation with Renee A. Schultz-Jacobson, and today it's April 5th, 2023. Today, I had a lovely conversation with Renee. I read her book prior, and I think it's an amazing book. Um, and I am going to share with you the back cover of that book before we dive into the conversation. Hope you all enjoy. When a trusted physician tells Renee Schultz Jacobson that he has the solution for a chronic insomnia, a tried and true medication without any side effects, she believes him. For seven years, she takes her clonazepam exactly as prescribed until, one day, she learns that her doctor is wrong. Long-term benzodiazepine use causes all kinds of problems, including profound changes in brain function. While healing from an iatrogenic brain injury that is not widely recognized by doctors, Renee leaves everything familiar behind and goes on a journey, meeting scientists and sages, healers and hucksters, who all teach her the same hard lesson, to stop seeking the help of experts and to trust her intuition. In Psychiatrized, Waking Up After a Decade of Fat Medicine, Renee Schultz-Jacobson contemplates the cost of compliance and exposes the truth about the dangers of psychiatric drugs, as well as a discontinuation syndrome, which affects thousands of men and women worldwide. Hi, Renee. Welcome to Men's Retired. So good to see you, finally. After reading your wonderful book, wonderful book, a masterpiece, a masterpiece. So for the audience, maybe not everybody will be acquainted with you. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got prescribed a benzodiazepine? Sure. Okay. So to jump right in, I would say that um, I, so there's multiple ways to answer this question, right? Like I could just simply say, oh, I had insomnia because that's what many people end up, you know, being prescribed. But I want to go a little deeper and say that um, I was having some um, unhappy situation. I was in a little bit of an unhappy situation uh, in my marriage um, and in my personal life, I guess I would say. So what I mean by that is I had had a baby. It was a very traumatic delivery. I lost a lot of blood during my son's delivery in back in 1999. It was a super scary experience for me. I actually had like a, um, was rushed into emergency surgery after he was born. And, um, and I had like a a death near death experience and that's all in my book. So I don't want to spend too much time on that. But, um, but it left me feeling really anxious and really, um, really like wanting to talk about the scary experience that I had had. And nobody wanted to talk to me about it. They were all kind of like, but, but it's in the past and the baby's here now. And I really felt like, and I said this in my book multiple times, I really felt like I was like a vessel for this infant. And like, I love my son and I was super happy that he was here and he was okay after this very difficult delivery. But I also had feelings that were completely ignored. And um, everyone, anytime I tried to talk about it, people just kind of said, be be quiet, you know, just quiet yourself and focus on the great things in front of you. And we all know, or at least I feel like those in the benzo community really understand that 
you know, if you're no matter what you're going through, whether you're having an illness or an injury or a difficult relationship or whatever it is you're going through, we need somehow to um, get that stuff out of us. And and for a lot of us, it's it, it's about, you know, sharing our feelings, talking and, ha and having someone to commiserate with. And I didn't have any of that at the time. My uh, then husband was really involved with his work and he was he did the best that he could, but he was not very present emotionally for me. And so that started things. And then what started to happen was um, we really disconnected from each other during this time. And I was trying so hard to connect with him. And he was sort of trying to run away from me because it felt like too much. He would spend all day working with patients and then come home to this wife who was like, I just need you. Like, I just... I need you. I need you. And he was like, it, you know, there was, he just it didn't work for him. And so we really disconnected. And I started to have a lot of insomnia. It started to manifest. My unhappiness started to manifest in a very particular somatic symptom, which is insomnia, which at the time I didn't think anything of. I thought, just go to the doctor and they'll give you something for that. But what I now understand is that insomnia is one of the very, very first somatic symptoms to let us know that something is bothering us and that we need to really do a deep dive internally to figure out what, what is it, what is going on. I had none of those skills at the time. I just kind of was told, just keep pushing, just keep pushing and you'll get through it. And I pushed through for years, tried many psychiatric drugs, tried, I like to do the list so people understand that I, I that the benzo was not the first prescription. So it was Prozac, Zoloft, Buspar, Lamictal, Lunesta, Lithium. And finally, they were like, here's this magical pill for you or whatever. And I took it and it was like, I slept, I slept. Like I slept for the first time in years and years and I called it a miracle drug. And I am sure I walked around town saying, oh my God, you have insomnia. This is, this is the, this is where it's at. You should be on this. I'm sure that I did that for a long time. However, as we all know, those of us who find your podcast, that kind of stuff does not come a quick fix never comes without a, a, a cost. And as my father always used to say, there's no, no such thing as a free lunch. And the cost is just insane over time. Definitely, definitely. And could you share with the audience which uh, benzo you got prescribed and the dosage that you sure. were on? Yes. So I was originally prescribed clonazepam or clonopin, as it's also called in the United States. And um it was originally prescribed as a quote unquote baby dose. My doctor told me that it was a low dose, that there was um, no risk, that the only risk that I might experience would be um, I might lose a little weight, he actually said. Wow. And what woman in the United States like doesn't want to have, like lose a little weight or whatever. So anyway, I took 0.25 milligrams of clonazepam to start. And I was on that dose for a long time and slowly over a seven year period, that low dose inched up to 2.5 milligrams of clonopin. 
and no one said one thing to me. I was married to a doctor. I was in a medical community. I saw my doctors regularly. Not one person ever said, you know, what are you doing with that? You've been on that a long time. Right, right. You also describe in your book um, that you come off it. Could you tell me a little bit or us a little bit about the taper? Yeah. So my taper, I actually was really fortunate when I look back at this now, like somehow the stars aligned. So I was wor- initially I worked with a doctor who lost his license uh, back in 2011. And at that time, I went back to my primary care physician, completely clueless about the strength of these drugs. And I was very blasé and was like, oh, you know, can you just continue to prescribe? So I want to be really clear. This was not my plan to deprescribe. I kind of went into it uh, unknowingly and, um, and, and like completely ignorant about what could possibly happen. But I was very fortunate. My GP connected me to a local doctor, an addiction specialist. Her name is Dr. Pat- Patricia um, Halligan. And people in the benzo community at this point probably know Trish because she's done numerous podcasts. She has a her own podcast called the, oh God, what's it called? The, 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 the Hero's Journey. And um, she happened to be, she happens to be one of the very few doctors who is very benzo wise. And she lives right here in Rochester, New York. So I got plugged in with Patricia and she supervised a slow and recommended a slow medically supervised taper, which we did over a 10 month period. I started out with a clonazepam, which I literally just cut and cut and cut until I got down as low as I possibly could on the clonopin or the clonazepam. I'm just going to call it clonopin. Yeah, us. that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got down to 0.25 milligrams of the clonopin again. And then she let me know. And again, this was way back in 2012. So there wasn't as much information as there is now. But at the time, I knew nothing. And she just said, you know, every little crumb of this stuff is so potent. Let's cross you over to Valium and we'll continue the taper. And I was very surprised to learn at the crossover that what I crossed over to was still like five, four or five milligrams of Valium, which is more than you would have for, you know, like a medical procedure, uh, like a dental procedure to, you know, on a day. And so I still, then I had to continue that taper. And um, I did that and got myself down to, again, I believe it was 0.125 milligrams of Valium. And at that point, what we did not know then, but what we do know now was that we should have content continued with a um, either a like a water titration or I could have continued to dry cut. So I could have gotten down all the way to 0.000, but I didn't. I jumped off at the 0.125 milligrams, which doesn't sound like a lot, right? Like doesn't sound like very much, but um, I'm very sensitive to medication always have been as many people are as they, you know, many people are. And um, it really just proved to be an absolute disaster. At the end, I had, a, a, it was just a cavalcade of, um, that's a fancy word. It was a cavalcade, it was a cascade of horrible um, symptoms. I just had a complete nervous system crash and was, um, 
had all kinds of, I had auditory and visual, uh, and, uh, auditory and visual hallucinations. I had seizures that actually dropped me to the floor. Um, and they weren't the kind of like aggressive, like kind of thing you'd see in a TV show. Like my body wasn't writhing. It was just a shutdown. I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. I couldn't watch television. The lights were too bright. The sound was too loud. Um, my digest, I could feel my body in a way that I could never feel it before. I had tinnitus. Um, my, I had pain in my face. I had muscle cramping. I mean, there are hundreds of symptoms, Naftal. And what I always tell everyone, and I mean, it sounds like a joke and I, and I, and I don't mean it in a joking way, but I had every single solitary symptom except erectile dysfunction. (laughs) (laughs) It was bad. There's no, I I've looked at that list and be like, you know, emotional dysregulation, temperature dysregulation, you know, weird, my, my nails were flaking. I had skin, weird skin blemishes. I had a tremor, like a Parkinsonian tremor. I drooled like, what the hell? And to be honest, I did not initially connect it to the coming off of the benzodiazepine because these things stay in your system for a long time. And so it wasn't like it happened on at the very last pill. It happened 10 days after. So I sort of thought that I was having a stroke. Like I didn't, it's so, isn't that so weird that like the symptoms for me were divorced. I was like, woohoo, I stopped this medication. I'm free. Right. And then 10 days later, all this happened. So people do have to understand that there is a really weird half-life associated with these drugs. And um, sometimes people, it's not uncommon for people to get off of them and feel like they're in the clear and then have a delayed response, which we all know if you're cutting, that's the, that's that experience of like, you have a wave and, and then it sort of, not that you ever feel good, but it, it, it calms down. So it was just a real delayed reaction and it was terrifying. Yeah. Well, in your, amazing book psychiatrized oh, which yes. i have here in my hands the audience can see that yeah, we'll read together <laughs> yeah hi this we'll great book i read it in like four hours as you know and i, I was texting you like in the middle like, oh my god oh my god oh my god um <laughs> it is such a profoundly i don't have any words i will not do it right it's a beautiful book it's the best book that i've read in my lifetime so far it's amazing Um, And I don't want to give too much away because it's such a beautiful, yet terrifying, it's everything all at once, kind of, you know. Um, But we really see you transform during this, well, journey, let me call it that. Um, And I I don't want to give too many spoilers on the book, um, but you were sick for a very long time after you came off, right? Yeah, it was really scary. And I don't want to scare people on the podcast because everyone's, how many times do we hear people say it? What am I going to say? Everybody's different, right? Like my story doesn't have to be your story, but yes, I had a very serious um, withdrawal and I was sick for, I would say that I was um, disabled and mostly homebound for, for, four years for four years is really what I say, because in the fourth year I had some really profound healing, but it was rough. And, um, 
I don't know how much I want to get into of that part, but it was a very difficult time and it required me leaving my home, leaving my community. I went first back to my parents' house and that was not a good situation. And then I ended up um, going to a, a living with a complete stranger who took me in, which is like the miracle, miracle of my life. And then I actually ended up going to rehab in Arizona. I cannot, when I think about getting on an airplane, how I did that, how how I managed to do that and come home, I, I, I was like, I felt like I was in a straight, you know, I needed a straight jacket, but um, but I did it, and and that was sort of really really difficult for years. Went um, went through a separation, which ultimately led to a divorce, and I lived in an apartment by myself and my days consisted of moving from bed to couch, lying down, resting. Um, I went to the grocery store late at night so I wouldn't run into people. So it was quieter. And um, it was definitely a very difficult, difficult time. So um, yeah, right. it, it, it was rough. Right. Well, one of the beautiful things in my opinion, I'm sure you can relate is that in your journey, because you are a trained, um, teacher, um, that was your original profession, right? Yeah. Now, in your journey, tell me a little bit how your creativity kind of came to light in your journey. Maybe you can share that. Yeah. with me. So, well, it was weird. So, um, yes, I was a teacher, but I was an English teacher. <laughs> and so, I used to be someone who, and I'm, I mean, I'm just being really honest here. I, I was a heart, I think I was a heart teacher. Like I, I, I don't mean that I was like a mean teacher, but I had this idea in my head that like, it was really important to me to make sure that people were like the best readers and writers and thinkers. And I, I was I, I had very high standards. I, you know, graded hard and all that kind of stuff. But we also did this cool thing, which were called creative projects. And I, I just, I guess I just had this idea that like, we don't always have to write an essay for everything. And so I, I did introduce um, these like creative projects into the classroom, which allowed students to either like draw something or make some kind of creative, have a creative outlet to connect with the literature that we had read. So sometimes people would paint something, sometimes they would make a poem, sometimes they would make a very symbolic mobile or like whatever it was. But it was, it was, I guess I had some kind of like an appreciation for creativity, although I wasn't really practicing it myself at that time. So one of the cool things, and I mean, when you're going through this experience, it's really, really hard to um, see where you're headed. But I know you can appreciate this, Naftal, because did you have a podcast before this crazy No, experience? not at <laughs> like, all. I never said out about podcasting. I didn't know anything. No, no, no. So it just, it, it came on my path, like for, you know, your art came into your life. Exactly. So there are weird gifts that people just have to kind of stay open to and be willing to kind of go toward them in a very gentle way. And also to like lose the perfection piece, right? So like you didn't give birth to a perfect podcast day one, but you've gotten really good at it. Well, I didn't like come out of the gate as like this incredible artist honestly but it was something that i did oh my god i'm getting all emotional 
it was something that I did while I was in rehab. I had an opportunity to, it was an assignment that we had to create our healing circle. And there was an assignment associated with it. And I went into that um, art room and I just like poured my soul out on this paper, you know, this brown craft paper. And I was there for hours and I was like, doing all this stuff. And I, you know, we used a hairdryer to dry it in between so I could do another layer. And then I went back to my group and like, we were all presenting and people had like made a chart or they had like made stick characters or they made a very simple drawing with like one or two colors. And I was like, oh my God, I think I did this assignment wrong. And I held this thing up and it was like, I looked around and people were like, that is really, that is really pretty. Like, that is really beautiful. And honestly, I was so insecure at that time and so sick. I really didn't know what they were seeing. You know, it just, I was looking at my mess of a story that was, that I created and I explained it, what it meant symbolically to the group and everything. And it was very well received. And so what I decided, so one of my friends at the Meadows, shout out Meadows of Wickenburg, um, at the time came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I just want to let you know, I would have, I would, I would, you know, would you be willing to sell me your healing circle? And I was like, shut up. You can't have my healing circle. It's fine. You know? And he was like, well, I just want you to know it, it was gorgeous and I would buy it. And I was like, well, I'll make you, you know, I'll make you something else when we get out of here. And to be honest, he was the very first person that I painted something for and he purchased my painting. It's actually still in his house. And um, we're, cool. he's the very first person. But what it did for me was it made me think to myself, well, maybe I do have a thing. Like, I loved doing it. It was fun. It was kind of effortless for me. So I just continued to do it. And I was completely shocked that people seemed to receive it well, like people were like, I love it. I would want to buy that. And so at the beginning, I wasn't even charging. I was just, I was just saying like, come on over, I'll give it to you. Just come, come spend time with me. Please just come sit with me. And then over time, I like ran out of supplies and people were like, Renee, you've got to start charging for this a little bit, so at least so you could replenish your supplies. And so my earliest paintings sold for like, I think they were like $10. And um, I went and bought more paint and more brushes. And I would sit on the floor or, or stand at the table and, um, and just paint. And over time, that cultivated a practice and it cultivated a confidence, which I know you totally get, right? Because you're such a good podcaster. You're so oh, good at your questions and you put them together so beautifully. And this was, I always tell people, you are looking at my coping mechanism, same. It, yep, this yep. is not a business plan, right? This is a coping mechanism. And yeah. I know you get it. And you're not the only one. We're not the only people like this. These stories, once you start to go out and look for them, there are people who are baking. There are people who, who are doing music. There are people who are falling into second careers or, or interests that are their passions. And, and then it's just like, it's like a, I always say that this was kind of like a cosmic ass kicking, like the Lord or whatever, my higher power was like, girl, you are not on the right path. And he was sort of like, gave me a spanking and put me on this other path that I just had to kind of march on. 
And, and now I know, I really know, and I, again, I'm sure you get this, that when I am doing the right thing, when I am in my highest, best self, everything happens really effortlessly. Like you don't have to push. Right, right. So, well, you know, time passes and you get, um, again, it's really hard to not spoil anything of the book, but yeah, you're not spoiling it. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm alive, um, so we know I made it, you know, right, we know right, right. It, right. But you, you, um, basically, this becomes your full time thing mm -hmm. and you rock at it. And I could you tell us a little bit how um, that is going right now? Because next to your um, creative side, you are also a coach, right? Yes, yes. So, what ended up happening very slowly very organically. So in 2014, near the end of 2014, I just, this was about one and a half years into the withdrawal. I uh, decided, you know, someone said you should start a professional page on Facebook. And so I just started posting my stuff on Facebook and then Instagram. And then I got a website and I was like so scared to get a website. Like, oh, it's gonna have to invest in myself, you know, like pay somebody to develop something or buy, you know, like what if nobody ever, you know, have business cards that link people to a website and what if I can't afford to pay for this thing? Anyway, slowly, slowly, organically. So it wasn't like things happened overnight. But then um, in 20, so, so I was already artist. I was already doing shows by 2018. Um, and then in 2019, just before the COVID pandemic, like I, st I decide, I, oh, so let me go back a little bit. Starting in around 2017, 2018, I started to, people started reaching out to me because it looked like I was coming out of this. You know, by then I really felt like I was doing much better. And um, people started reaching out to me for some help. And so I started kind of like coaching people in just very, uh, or like I said, organically talking to people, spending a lot of time with people on the phone, telling people what I had done that worked for me. And which hopefully we'll get to a little bit, but um, I, I was doing that. And then I started to get a little nervous. I was like, geez, I'm not a therapist, you know, and I never claimed to be a therapist. I'm not a trained social worker. I was a teacher. I mean, I definitely worked with students who went, were going through difficult times, but this was, you know, now I'm an artist. I, I, I was like, do I have any business doing this with people? So I decided to go back and get a certification as a certified, certified recovery peer advocate and a certified substance abuse counselor for both. I just wanted to see like, what is it that people are doing who are helping people coming through different kinds of addiction? I really wanted to see what it was that people were doing in the recovery community to help people come off of this. How, how were they, what were the things? I had this lived experience. So I stepped into this role as a recovery coach and um, I do it same thing as I the way I did my art, really intentionally, really slowly. I only speak to one person a day. Um, so that person has 100% of my attention. I deliver, developed a kind of benzodiazepine or psych med withdrawal healing curriculum, which starts with things like affirmations like how we talk to ourselves matters you know we gotta what are we gonna feed are we gonna feed the devil that's on our shoulder telling us to end it and we're never gonna get through it 
Or do we want to feed the angel on this shoulder that's saying, you can do this, just keep going. I know it's hard. Like, which ones do you want to feed? So affirmations, journaling. I talk about somatic work, yoga, talk about all different kinds of detoxing, supplements, blah, blah, blah. There's like, so I have, here, let me just show you. I have this giant list right here. Of course, right, it's, a right. of course it's a mess because I blot my brush on it too. Right, right. I, got all these lists of healing modalities because you know everyone is different and some what works for me might not work for you so let's you know try and plug you into something so for example a lot of people love acupuncture i did acupuncture i tried it multiple times i found that it hurt and it didn't stick with me and it wasn't relaxing for me a lot of this experience is about learning to dial down your gaba and learn how to get quiet and be at peace with yourself right like just how to sit quietly with yourself and just kind of like be just learn how to down regulate because people who are taking anti-anxiety medication tend to be anxious about whatever it is that they're going through in their lives. So um, it's really about learning to calm down and do a lot of self-talk. What works for me more than acupuncture is body work, you know, going to have a deep tissue massage or, uh, or have somebody, you know, uh, a cranial sacral massage back of the head or whatever, or even like a pedicure, you know, just to have someone touch me in this way. But that's not for everyone. Some people don't like that. Some people. So I offer a, like a buffet of options and say to people, the idea is that when you're going through this experience, you you can't just sit there shaking and drooling, you know, and thinking I'm never going to stop. This, this is never going to stop. You have to start of put yourself on a different kind of a curriculum slowly as you support, learn to support your central nervous system, learn to shut off the outside world and do the journey inside, things will eventually integrate, get quieter, and some of these other skills start to come up, like other these other superpowers that we start to discover. And for me and for you too, I would argue, it's this create it's this connection to our creativity. Definitely. Because when I was medicated, I lost it. I lost my connection to my deeper self, to my creativity. And it was um, it was only when I came off that it kind of like came back full force. Yeah. Well, the audience knows that I'm still tapering, but um, I've had a lot of healing despite that. Um, I'm going very slow, as everybody knows. But in my my healing days, and I've had a lot of good days, but I'm just noticing such a because I was on benzos for so long, I have been on benzos for very long, like six and a half years now. But I was on a really high dose. Um, and I'm just noticing the mind fuck that I had on these drugs, you know, I'm, I'm realizing that now it's like the veils of reality are being lifted, it sounds maybe trippy, but um, is though right it's like un it's like unwrapping layers of gauze every day there's like a new revelation like oh my god i just realized this like yes isn't it weird the insights where you're like i just realized this you know? yeah yeah it's my crazy parents are involved <laughs> my temple is involved my religion is involved my education is like every day it's just yeah definitely definitely now we did uh, speak about this prior to re the recording is um well you are a benzo coach and <clears throat> excuse me i have gotten a lot of um responses and questions about uh, from people that are uh, privately very open about the problems that they have in their relationship in terms of intimacy and sexuality 
And what I tell people, and this is just, you know, me, is I can say for sure that my, my libido has totally been shattered ever since I was in withdrawal. Um, I'm pretty sure it will, will return to me. But I've also had partners um, reach out to me and be like, hey, this is hard for me too. And, and, you know, also in your book, your sexuality is, is a big deal to you. Maybe you can elaborate and maybe share some of your views and, and in terms of yourself and what you have noticed seeing that you're off. Yeah. So, so, um, so, okay, let me see how to tackle this to start. Um, I want to go back a little bit and give a little bit of information that's not fully fleshed out in the book. Um, just because when you're writing a book, you have to decide on like what you're focusing on. And I really tried to write the book that I wanted to read when I was in with, when I was going through this, you know, I want, it's very direct. And so I didn't focus on a lot of the previous trauma, but I do like to talk about it because, um, it's part of it. So when I was growing, when I was younger, when I was uh, 17 years old, I, went through a, I, I was involved in a, a rape. I was raped and um, it was a really horrible time in my life. Um, I tried to, it's almost parallel to the Benzo experience, right? Like it's weird, these patterns. I tried to talk to, it's also like my son's delivery. So I've had a, a repeated pattern here. I tried to talk to people about what had happened. They did not want to hear it. They literally didn't hear it. They were like, oh, that's so cute. You know, and it was like, it was someone that i knew and had feelings for but it was not a positive experience and so i was like it's so cute like you guys you're not hearing me and so i tried to communicate what i was feeling people could not receive it for whatever reason it just didn't fit with their world view of me of the other person whatever and so i told my parents because it's not like he stopped to use a condom or something it's not, wasn't like that. And so I told my parents that I, what had happened, my mother immediately shamed me, blamed me, asked me why I was out so late, what I was wearing, what I did to give him an idea like this, all that kind of stuff. My father was very hurt and upset, you know, um, and I was supposed to go to college to, to about, a, about two weeks later. And my dad just said, well, let's make sure you're, you know, let's get your pregnancy tests. And um, it was at the height of eight, the AIDS, you know, epidemic. And so got AIDS tested. I, I, I was terrified. I thought I was going to find out I had AIDS. I had to get AIDS testing for the entire remainder of the year. And it was very stressful. And then I went off to college and I never really talked about it. Like I just sh shut it down. And it sort of lived in my body for a long time. And what it did for me, what that does for you when you have that kind of sexual trauma, even if it's just once, even just once. So I, I often think about all the people who are enduring daily, you know, regular sexual trauma with other people enduring that. But for me, just one simple time, one time, it really made me feel like I couldn't trust myself. Like I trusted this person and look where that got me. I, I, I didn't feel like I was in control of my body. Like I didn't want it. And yet I, I couldn't stop it. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of wounds there. And then there were like also the things with my family that I didn't feel like I could go to my family anymore because they didn't support me. They didn't understand me. They just sent me off. 
honestly, I probably should not have gone to college. You know, like I needed help back then. Yeah. Um, but I was basically on autopilot. And what I did was I found my coping skill at the time, which was I just really became like top student. I was like, I'm just going to work. I'm just going to work and work and work and work. And I, I did. I mean, my four years in college, I was very productive. I graduated cum laude with a, like a 4.0, well, 3.9 GPA. And, um, and I uh, graduated Phi Beta Kappa, which is a really high honor society. And so, but what was happening underneath all this is that I was very uncomfortable with my sexuality. I was not like super, um, I, I had never really talked about this with anyone. And it was just like a big gaping wound that I never really addressed. And what it did was it made me fearful in romantic relationships. It made me not want to pursue romantic relationships. And I really just shut down that part of myself. Fast forward, I ended up meeting my person who became my husband. And without saying too much about his story, and you'll get it from my book a little bit, but that's his story. We were never very... Uh, there wasn't that sexual compatibility that you want to have because I think I was scared of that. I had had it in that prior relationship and it scared me. I, it, it, it was too big. It was out of control. I couldn't stop it. And so I think I looked for something safer, quieter. We were very good friends. We were very close, but intimately in terms of our emotional connection and our sexual connection, it wasn't there. And so that's not to say that I didn't have those feelings. I did, but we just didn't, we were sort of mismatched there. And what happened for me then, what I now, when I look back at it, I understand I had this deep trauma that was never addressed. It was never healed. I had no skills on how to manage it. And so same kind of thing. I just kept going. We limped along. I decided it probably wasn't that important. It didn't mean that much and kind of kept going. And my husband at the time and I, we, we had very um, infrequent and unsatisfying intimacy. And we got into this weird dance where I would sort of try to look to him for some comfort and some connection and he would push me away or go in another room. And it was really a lonely time for me and um, made me feel very bad about myself. You know, it was like I had a giant pendulum, which was either I was like attacked and out of control or I was neglected, which felt which also felt out of my control. And I was like, where is this thing? I could never really find the middle place. And so that was a huge part, although I didn't realize it, of why I ended up on the medication, because I was forever trying to have a relationship with someone with whom was not compatible. And I was very embarrassed about this. I was very, I felt like a failure as a wife. I sought um, help from a rabbi who told me that I was a good teacher and that if I was a good teacher, I would be able to draw my husband out of his shell, um, put all the blame on me that like somehow this was like I needed to, it's on me to like, you know, right. make things better. Um, and and 
Um, I was trying to be a good wife. I was trying to be a good mother. I was trying to be a good teacher. And the insomnia, like basically, I think the insomnia started because I wanted to be intimate at night. He would push me away and then I, he would fall asleep and I'm like next to him stewing in bed and I just couldn't sleep. And if I moved around, then he would yell at me for moving around and that would wake him up. And so it was just a really bad cycle. You know, it's just a really bad cycle. So when the insomnia started, I just thought, oh, I'm not sleeping because I have a young child and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. But really it was my body having a need, having a basic need for comfort, for connection, for love, you know, it's a love language and it was not being offered to me at all. I was being deprived of that. And my body was trying to show that to me, but there was no outlet for it. So the drug, what the drug did for me is it shut it down. Right. Shut right. down my libido a hundred percent. I had zero sex drive, which worked in our marriage because he didn't want it the way it is as frequently as I, or, or really at all. Um, but as free, definitely not as frequently as I w- wanted. I had a higher libido. I, I was sexually alive right. and the drug shut it down. And I limped along like that for seven years. What did it do? It made me a bit of a robot. I I was a good wife. I cooked the meals. I did the laundry. I took care of our son. But emotionally and physically, sexually, intimately dead inside. And and how was your healing in terms of your sexuality um, coming off and healing? You know, yeah. post drugs and everything. Yeah, it's incredible. So I didn't, you know, again, you're so disconnected from yourself when you're on these drugs, which is the scariest part because you're basically a functional alcoholic. You know, it's like you don't realize it. I I think I said this to you one time. It's kind of like, have you ever tried to take the keys away from someone who is drunk? Like they take away their car keys. They're like, I'm fine. I can drive. And you're like, dude, you cannot drive we don't behave that obviously when we're medicated, but we're not in our integrity. We are not connected to our true selves. And so like what the studies show. So before I even talk about myself, let me just tell you the studies show that when people are, when women are using medications, even birth control pills, they influence who we select for a partner. Um, they, they influence, and that is, that is research. I'm happy to direct you to, so you can like put it in your show notes or whatever. It's really fascinating stuff. And it, it, so it influenced like my, who I, I, you know, who you pick and, and how you interact and stuff. And so for me coming off of the medication, what happened is I was on them for seven years. So I came off of them when I was, let's see, let's do the math here. I was like young, young 40s, right? I basically lost my entire decade of my 30s because I was medicating with those other psych meds first and then the benzo. So it was a decade. Mm. That's why my book is called um, Psychiatrized Waking Up After a Decade of Bad Medicine. So I lost my 30s. But when I woke up, it was like you go back to the person that you were when the trauma started. Started. Mm-hmm. So I basically became a 17 year old person. And right. when I started stuffing it 
And I was like, I came off of these drugs. And I mean, I'm being very um, explicit here, but one of the very first symptoms I had was like this tingling in my lady bits, we'll say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was uncomfortable, actually. It was like, it hurt. It was like this throb and this, this, um, I mean, I felt sensation there. It was sensation. And there's a lot of pain associated with benzo withdrawal, not just emotional, but like I had a lot of pains in my back and I had a lot of muscle aches and stuff. And so I had this throb, I had pain in my face. My eyes were watering. People have tinnitus. So there's a lot of like this, like your body doesn't know what to do. It's, it's returning to homeostasis. And so I returned to this woman who was like, and forget the 17 year old, even if I was like in my young thirties, when I started this, like I was like this virile, like I was, I came back into my body and I wanted, I was looking for my husband to comfort me and like hold me. And that's when I had this moment of like realization, right? The veil was gone and I don't have the coping skill of the drug anymore. And it was like, oh shit he is not in this with me. This is why I started the medication in the first place. This is how I felt. This is not good. And so I, I had to sort of face that at that point that, you know, I would approach him and say, you know, will you cuddle with me? Will you hold me? Can we, I would try to kiss him. And he started pushing me away again. And I was like this, oh my God. Oh my God. This yeah. was the, this is what started it. This is what started. It. And I don't have a baby anymore. No one can put it on the baby, right? The baby's 13 now. The baby is not keeping me up at night. So what was keeping me up on my, on my, my thoughts and the rejection and then my thoughts after the rejection. So it was a really difficult realization and it led me to realize I needed to leave the marriage And um, ultimately, that's when I moved out. And so the healing looked was is an interesting one, because that was your question. The healing has been really fascinating. I worked with I've worked with numerous practitioners. So, yes, I worked with somebody who did cognitive behavioral therapy to help me unpack it and talk about it and understand my feelings of how it felt to not be heard by my friends, not be believed by my friends to have been shamed and blamed by my mother and to have experienced my father's deep disappointment um, that I wasn't a virgin, that I was never going to find a partner, like all this stuff that, that I had to like, my, my religion said, you know, had judgments about not being a chaste woman or whatever. And then, so I just, it's like life review, you know? So I worked with that, but then there was, I did a lot of somatic work with different practitioners. I learned Um, breath work and how to connect with my body. I learned how I learned. I mean, this is going to sound crazy probably to you, but I learned that there's nothing wrong with being sexual and like wanting to have sex with your husband is normal. Mm -hmm. That was Mm -hmm. not normalized in my, in my life. People said, Oh, it's not the most important thing. It's, you know, it's, it's not important. It's more important that you, this and that. And, And it was like, well, I get that it's maybe not the most important thing, but it's, it's important. It's a thing. It's definitely important. And I, I think um, if people are in withdrawal, it depends on if you are in a relationship like I am, I think um, how your sex life was before the benzos and the taper, that is very important. If there were problems then there, you're going to have problems now, or you're going to have problems afterwards. 
Correct. Unless you maybe want to work with that, you know, work together and communicate yes, about it. Was open to do that. Absolutely. And, but there was, we tried, we did marriage counseling, all that stuff. And so it just wasn't going to work with us. And once we accepted that and I accepted that the decision was, do you want to stay with status quo or do you want to, you know, end this union or do we need to end this union? Because it's just not going to be comfortable. It's like living with your trigger, you know, it's right. like living trigger all the time. So a hundred percent, you are right that you, you, if you had a positive, if you had a good experience with someone before the benzos, you're going to have a good experience. You know, you're, there's this marriage. I'm not saying that like relationships have to end, but when you come back into your body and, and really align with who you are, your integrity, you're honest with yourself about what you need, what your boundaries are, you know, that everyone's, everyone's got different things there, right? right. Everyone has things. And so I just tuned into my own integrity. And I was like, as a person who now is creative, right? Like I'm creating art and I'm realizing that the wound there was on a physical level because the drugs shut things down. But there was also an emotional component about like how I talked about how I thought, you know, like the feelings that I had. And then there was a psychological level about like, the talk that I did to myself, that I was crazy, that I wanted too much, that my the things that I wanted were ir irrational or not important or whatever, like the self-talk that I was doing. And then just this higher wound, which is like God gave or whatever you want to call it, the universe, God, the you know, our maker, the divine, I don't care. But whatever you call it, we are imbued, many of us, many of us, maybe not all of us. But many of us, if you are have a libido and you have sexual desire, that's a beautiful thing. And to try to deny it is harmful. Now, if you don't have that desire, then that's how you're here too. You know, I'm not right. judging. So whatever, but we have to understand that. And I think that this is happening on the planet for real, that like we are, it used to be there were men and there were women and these parts fit together. And that is how we know that we're the puzzle. And that's how, we are so much more complicated than that. We see it now. There's people who identify as this and don't identify as that. And they may look this way, but they feel that we it's it's we're waking up to the fact that there has to be so much more dialogue. There has to be so much more um like we have to slow things down and really get to know other people to make sure that we're a match, that we're a good match. And before we settle down into something and we have to continuously mind that relationship. It's like the most important thing. And I know I didn't have any of those skills. And so what I've really learned here during my experience is that we're here to listen to people, really listen to people with our ears open, which is what right. you're doing with this podcast, listen to them and learn who they are, what their experiences are. And in the, in the best, in the best, best possible way, love each other, despite our flaws and our imperfections, just love each other through whatever it is that we're going on. That doesn't mean you have to like, be intimately sexually intimate with all these people but you just right. try to like love each other and say i'm here for you i support you rather than cast people out or, or tell them to be quiet about what they're going through and yeah. so i think that the healing piece for me was that honestly naftal i once i became really aligned with who i am be honest with myself about what i wanted 
be connected to figuring out what my boundaries were. I had never heard the word boundaries. I didn't know that I had control over these things. Then I started to sift through the people in my life or just basically started to happen naturally. People fell away. There's what I call the purge. People just fell away. They did not recognize this person who was not going to be walked on anymore, who was not going to be like, um, oh, will you do this for me? No, sure. No, I stopped. I started to think about, is this something I can do? Do I want to do it? Do I have the energy to do it? And so I realized that a lot of people, I had a lot of relationships with people that were transactional. And so I really learned about myself. I did this like deep, deep dive that I think is necessary coming through benzo withdrawal because it really is about writing yourself and really knowing yourself in a way that I definitely didn't know before. And so the healing for me was about writing my, you know, there's all this weird language, but like my chakras, realizing that I had an injury at this level. Right, this right. Level, that affected how I digested things. It affected my heart. It affected my throat because I wasn't allowed to talk about it. It affected my, you know, it affected everything. It affected my connection to my higher power because I didn't trust God or whatever. And once I came back into myself, came back into myself with somatic practices, with breath work, with just allowing myself to come back to myself and be gentle with myself and speak well of myself and all these different modalities that helped little by little for me to reconnect with myself. Now I've been fortunate to have entered into, um, I mean, I'm not in a relationship right now, but unfortunately I would like that at some point, but the reality (laughs) is I have had a few partners since then. And I continue to learn because of those experiences. And what I've learned is that there was nothing wrong with me sexually. I just wasn't a good fit with my husband. We just weren't. So sexually, everything's intact. It's a, it's absolutely my physical, you know, one of my love languages. I've stepped into my female power. I'm goddess power, you know, and all that stuff. I mean, I really do like, I'm a, a vibrant person and it's connected to how I make my artwork that like all of me is alive and I'm a sensory sensual person who takes inspiration from everything I see. I mean, I'm literally looking outside right now. Things are, there's these daffodils that are coming up and I feel that in my whole entire body. And I, I'm not trying to sound like a weirdo, but like, I think I always was that way when I was young, but like life kind of, told me that not to be that way. Don't be that way. But I am that way. That's what, Mm -hmm. that's who I am. I'm dialed into my compassion, my empathy. I watch, I, you know, I'm one of those people that like watches a Kleenex commercial and I'm like, (laughs) Kleenex. I'm very, very compassionate. And that was sort of pushed out of me for a long time. This is why I'm here. I am here for this. And I think a lot of people who get medicated happen to be very creative, very compassionate, very empathic people. So you tell me what the planet looks like when all the compassionate, creative, empathic people are being medicated. Right, right. I think one of my things um, growing up, I already like questioned the status quo. Like, why am I being told I have to be at this time at work, at school? Why is this being taught to me? I have other interests. Um, That's so good. I I didn't do 
any of that. I didn't question any of it. I questioned everything. And I, I thought the whole system kind of sucked. It still sucks. Um, I felt like I would, no one asked me, like when you're really young, no one asks you like, are you happy with school? Maybe you have some input. Like we don't listen to kids and some right. kids have, what did you do? What did you learn today in school? Right. It's not right. Like do you think school's valuable? You know? <laughs> exactly. And I, I think I, I, I did my coping because, you know, we have to make money. We have to do certain things. There's some, there's pressure, but I kind of danced my way through all of it. And then I got my Lyme disease and tinnitus and I couldn't sleep, but um, I've been realizing throughout the well, past few months because I was like, I'm sick benzos. I thought it was a medication, you know? Yes. It was a physical trauma. It is a neurological issue it was life altering but my underlying fear was like i need to be at work at this time there is no space for me to kind of crash and go back i didn't allow myself that as well and i i didn't have the balls to go to my work like hey dudes and dudettes i'm not mentally okay right now and i have this condition i need to figure some shit out leave me be and if you give me the time i'll come back better than ever but instead of 100%. that i got medicated I think that, well i think also that just i was very i grew up in a family with a really strong work ethic right it was like my dad used to my mother my father okay i'm telling you something oh my god i'm sorry mom and dad from the time i was really little my father used to say this mantra every single solitary day every day we would sit at the breakfast table and my father would leave for work and he would say uh Daddy has to go to, and we would say work so that he can make money so that he can, so that he can bring it home so that we can have, a, you know, like do things we want to do or whatever it was, you know, we, we would add like, so we can have, you know, we would, that was where we would throw in our things so we could have a bike or so that we could have a trip or whatever. And it was like this thing every day that like my dad every day went to work worked hard he had to make money so that we could do things and that is very capitalistic right like you every day you right and we do have to do that however what i never saw and what i never heard was what do you do if you have too much stress at work what if something comes up in your life that is preventing you from doing your work what if you're upset what if someone dies what if you're having feelings and you can't like do this i know they always say the show must go on but like sometimes the show can't go on and you have right. to stop and i was such a perfectionist that's what i was sort of trying to get at before when i was a teacher like i put a lot of pressure on myself to create perfect lessons like perfect lessons god forbid i went in there without a really amazing plan or a less you know an a plus lesson plan. How would I, how would I live? You know? So I was on a treadmill too, of like up in the morning, six, like, you know, six o'clock in my classroom, seven o'clock teaching from 7am until 2:40 PM. Then I had to lead a club from like three until five, then home, make dinner, you know, grade the papers, go to bed between midnight and 6 a.m. and do it every single solitary day for years and years and years and years. It was possible before my son was born, but it was not possible after my son was born. And I just didn't know how to say stop to it. And I, and I trusted 
all the, you know, I was part of like a medical family. So I trusted that narrative. I just trusted it. And I was married to a doctor and he was a good doctor. And so like he said, go to the doctor. I totally trusted it. Hook, line, sinker. I didn't question it at all until I found myself on the rough end of that narrative, you know, on the other side of it, I did not question it. And I had no skills, not tell. It never occurred to me to go and speak to my principal and say, I can't do this. It never, I just like, how do you do it? How do you tell your employer? I can't do this job. You know, when there's all these other people that want to do your job, I just, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to. I knew how to do it. And I had diff I had a different worth ethic from the start. I think I was like um, on my most active. I was like 19, 20, doing a pre-bachelor's, doing an internship, working to make some money, studying. And I was like full time doing stuff. But once I got a job, I was like, I want to work part time. I want to have balance. And one of the well, things that I mean, like, how in the hell did you know that? We had, I, I just know I just I just really. I, the, I think when I was younger, the idea of working five days a week versus two days of free time, it didn't make five? sense to me. <laughs> no, we don't do that in the Netherlands. Maybe some yeah, people. I need but to come to the Netherlands. <laughs> um, yeah, like 40 hours is the max. And in some uh, branches, it's 36 hours, which would be considered a full-time you know, week. I was like, that's not going to happen for me. If I have to financially, I will, but I would prefer three or four days. So I had it right. But where I struggled at work, and I guess it was like one of those minor things that was kind of, you know, like festering on like low level. And I didn't know is that I felt like my creativity and my input was not appreciated. I was a number and I had to do a certain thing that they asked me to do. And granted, I got paid to do that. But it was like, we can be more efficient, more loving, all of the, those things. I think I have pretty good ideas, but no one, and that's kind of the theme of my life. And I think it applies to a lot of people in Benzo Withdrawal is we spoke, but they didn't listen. And we spoke. And they didn't, they didn't, they didn't listen. We get shut down. And I think, so I would agree with you, I will agree with you that a lot of us are just very creative and very outspoken and very intelligent, but sometimes it's hard to find our place on the planet and we have people around us telling us to do this or that. And I would have never questioned a doctor and I, I would have never, I, I, I think for me, it was kind of like baffling that I could get a drug from a doctor that could cost me my life and could cause brain damage. So all of that stuff, I just, you know, I trusted everyone totally. and only to find out that I should have trusted myself. And I, totally. I should have, I should have That's had more true. balls and just say, fuck y'all. I'm taking a break. And I don't um, know. so here's, so here's what I'm going to say to that. And we have not necessarily talked about this much, this part, right? But I have, when I had my near-death experience during this and, and then a subsequent second one, things have been revealed to me and on a very deep spiritual level. And I totally, I mean, I don't care who believes it or not, for myself and me, I totally understand why we're here, why I'm here, what my purpose is and how this shit works. Okay. So I'm going to drop it. Right. All of us are here doing what we have to do during this lifetime as impact as 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 uh based on our past lifetimes so what i'm saying to you is i have never been this far before because where your life gets hard when your life gets hard that's the place where you 
where you, that's as far as you've ever been in your spiritual de development. So, and there, and I could go on and on about it, about how, what I learned and what I saw, like what I actually saw this, like the souls coming back in and everything. So I am a hundred percent sure that in my previous life or lives, I know because it's been revealed to me through uh, past life regression, which was a major healing tool. When you're asking about the sexual healing, I saw that I had been a slave for many, many lifetimes. And you saw it in my book when I talk about that weird past life regression that I did. I saw it and um, and it was like a revelation to me that I saw that I was all different kinds of slaves. I was an indentured servant. I was killed in the Holocaust. I was way back in Egyptian times. I was, I was chained to a concrete slab. And what became really clear to me was that in my lifetime, in this lifetime, I was still, I had been, I had still been a slave, like a chemical slave. I was enslaved to the drugs and this is the first time in any of my lifetimes that I have ever been free. Wow. And freedom is hard. It's hard. It's so much easier to go to work and have someone say, do this, Naftal, do this, Renee, you know, teach this, do that. Now, look at us. Right. We're, you select your own guests. I have to come up with my own painting inspiration. You put together your podcast afterwards. You edit it to how well you think it needs to be. I have to edit my paintings. I have to market my painting. You know, it's like we run our own show now. We're It's hard, right? It's hard. But I, I love to do it. I love that. it. I love <laughs> it. I love it so, so much. I, even, even if I am very symptomatic, um, I've had a few episodes where I was kind of like, oh, I didn't sleep last night, but I still, you know, go for it. Um, How many people do you hear that say that they love what they are doing every day? I that That is such a fair point because I tell my friends, there's one friend that I have, but she works like really uh, just a few hours a week, like super part-time. She enjoys going to work. Everyone else I know, their soul is being sucked into this, um, what's that called? Um, the hamster what, yeah. the rat race, the rat race of life. And I can just see everybody. And I think that was the case with me as well, that slowly but surely, if you're not passionate about what you are doing, it will wear you down and it will catch up on you at some point. And I'm seeing the signs. Um, it's hard to break from that because we have a society, at least yeah, in the Netherlands. We never would if we didn't get sick. Right, right. And I mean, I, I think I can share this. My partner had a burnout with, you know, job related things. There's a at least in my country, a lot of people are sick at home now because they're burnt out. And well, we can talk forever about it, but I can see it now. And I think I was also going towards a towards a burned out. My soul wasn't being fed. Yeah. I wanted to be more creative. That was not being responded to. So That's I out of balance, out of right, balance, right, That's right. It. And you probably didn't even realize how important that was to you. You know, like people minimized that to me. They were like, "Oh, you know, it's not that important." Like it's when they tell you it's not that important. You got a good job. You got good benefits. You know, it's like, and right. and so. So what I say is that you and I, and those of us coming through this experience, it really, I know when you're in it, it's when you're in the weeds, it's hard to believe that it's happening for a reason. It is literally for ascension. We are stepping outside the matrix and we have found a way, I have found a way to live my life 
to pay for my life, to have friends, to feed my soul, to connect with other like-minded people. And I've just let all the rest of it fall away. And is it lonely? Yeah, a little sometimes. It's a little lonely because I feel like other people are like in the matrix and they're, it's like you said, you can see it now when there's, you know, you can see it. I can't hang out with those people who are just workaholics. I can't, it was a former incarnation of mine, but now I'm here for connection and love and truth telling. I'm sorry if you don't like my truth. I'm sorry that you think your psych meds are working for you. Maybe they are for you this lifetime. It's not my job to to force this on people, but for those of us who are going through it, I truly believe that we're in it because for whatever reason, like we're being made to wake up to something else, to ascend to a new level of awareness, a new vibration. And I'm going to ask you, when, when you were before this experience, if someone told you that they were like going through something difficult, like they had an injury or an illness, or like they said that they were like, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm just projecting all this, like they were gluten-free or they had like something that they couldn't eat this or they couldn't tolerate that. Like, do you remember how you would have received that kind of thing? Were you, how, I, I don't know. I never really thought about it. I, the whole medical, because I used to be healthy, <laughs> you know, I used to be healthy. That's so I, I had, mean. I had no clue of it, of this existence. I actually, this is what I'll give you, um, the whole antidepressants thing. I never had the need to take them. Um, but I actually thought that it may helped uh, other people. It's like, oh, if you're depressed, then we have medications for that. So right. it's probably a good thing. Now, of course, I know in New my perspective, opinion, I'm New like, perspective. no, that's just not, you know, that whole, like, we're missing something. It's been debunked and everything. I just don't believe it. And like you, it's I'm not going to tell. The full story, like the full story needs to be told that it may help you, but there may also be a long time, long term you know, um, you know, problem. And so I guess all I was getting at is that like, I know that like when people used to say that like they were going through something really difficult, I would sort of be like, "Uh uh-huh. Like I really didn't hear it the way now, if someone says they're having a hard time now, I'm like, what's going on? Tell me what's going on. (laughs) Maybe I can, the physical you know, like, things, I, I could not relate to that, but I've always been a person, but sometimes that's hard for people too, because uh, I'm not going to name, but I, I used to have friends that would say, I, I, I'm i in a difficult spot in my relationship. Our sex life isn't very good or having some issues. And then I would tell them what I thought about it, but that would be too confrontational because then they would have to work right, on their issues. You need to get out of that relationship, right? <laughs> or like, you, need- <laughs> you need to speak up. You know, you need to speak up. And, you know, I found throughout my life that some people want the easy, they want the social, socially accepted answers. Like, oh, it it will, it will be all right. Just stick with it. Blah, blah, blah. They're just on their journey. They're on their path the same way that we were. So I don't even really offer advice unless somebody asks for it now, because we don't really take other people's advice. We don't, we are on our path. And so I'm not 
here to change other people's opinions. I'm just here to help the people that are in the weeds and, and help them understand why they're going through it and that there are weird gifts that come as a result of it. Would you ever have thought you'd be like a big podcaster? No, and no, never. I, I thought I'd be, yeah, I didn't even think I'd, I'd survive because I was right. so close to death. Right. <laughs> and, and there I never would have that. thought, never thought I would be an artist, never thought I'd be, have written a book, ne never. Never, never, never. And here right. it is. And I'm healthy and I'm well and I make plans with friends and I have new friends and I have friends in the Netherlands and I have <laughs> friends all over. The I mean, like I know people I've rebuilt this thing that, that, that collapsed and other people can do it too, but it takes a long time. And so at this point, I would just say I'm physically well. I am emotionally connected to myself and other people. I am psychologically so much stronger because I know things that I didn't know before, right? I, mm. I'm strong here. I am dialed into my creativity, into my higher power. I can close my eyes and see things. I can, I have ideas that excite me again. And the only thing I'm financially good, like everything's good. I feel very, very comfortable my like the only thing that's missing for me right now is is a is a real partner so there's always one question that i asked all of my guests maybe you've heard it if someone currently now is in withdrawal and maybe in a difficult patch um what would you give as advice like what worked for you perhaps something that you could give our listeners yeah. So um, I would say, and I, I know it's trite and people don't want to hear it, but I promise you that if you are in this journey and you feel stuck, you feel stuck, like you're not moving forward, the wounding is on a physical level. That is real. There is mitochondrial involvement. It's at an injury at a DNA level physically. You're not making it up. There is an emotional level here too. So like Naftal and I were talking about that you have to be able to talk about it, pretend like hiding it, hiding it or being ashamed. You have to learn how to get rid of that stuff and talk about it, own it. You didn't do anything wrong, you know? So there's that. There's the psychological level, how we talk to ourselves. We just have to like step into this experience, own it. And also believe that it's happening to you for a reason. And know when you're in the weeds, that it's very hard to believe that, but there are crazy gifts that come as a result of it. And so I just want people to understand that this is a real thing, but it's for a purpose. And if you feel stuck on any of these levels, what I really recommend, and I know it sounds loopy AF, that if you're having trouble with the physical level, there are people who can help you with the taper. They can help you to figure out things to heal the body. There are people, there are practitioners who can help you heal each level of this wounding. And if you have ended the taper and you're feeling okay physically and you are practicing your boundaries and you, you know, and you know all this stuff, but you're stuck, I really want you to encourage people to explore um, things like dialectical behavioral therapy mindfulness, and to even go further out into a spiritual journey. If you can get into your tap into your subconscious, you may find the hidden piece of the puzzle that will help you to let go of past lifetimes that have a hook into us. They do. We come in. It's like people are now starting to talk about generational trauma and things like that. 
We have to snip that stuff so that you can be truly, truly free. And one of the best tools to do it is past life regression. I know it sounds loopy. I never would have spoken like this previously. I would have absolutely rolled my eyes and been like, oh, what? <laughs> okay. Well, Renee, thank okay. you. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for your time. And we'll be in touch. Absolutely. Thank you, Naftal. You're amazing. And thank you so much for hosting. I appreciate you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening to the episode. Be well, be safe. Remember, it's not a race. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, go to paypal.me slash